0: Well, good morning to each and everyone. Our scripture text this morning is found in John chapter 8, and I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to that portion of God's Word, John chapter 8, and I would like to read for you verses 12 through 20. Again, that's John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, Because his hour had not yet come. In chapter 2, the Lord Jesus claims to be the temple. In chapter 3, he claims to be that brazen serpent that was lifted up, raised up in the wilderness. In chapter 4, he claims to be the living water. In chapter 6, he claims to be the manna, the bread that has come down out of heaven. In chapter 7, he claims to be the rock, the rock that has been struck and from which living water has flowed. And in each of these instances, in each of these cases, what we have are, are symbols, symbols which point to Christ. These are symbols. Christ is the fulfillment. Or these are types, and Christ is the anti-type. Or these are shadows, and Christ is the substance. And here in chapter 8, we come face to face with one more symbol, uh, one more shadow, uh, one more type, if you like. And it is this idea of, of light. And the Lord Jesus, in the midst of the Jews, and in particular in the audience of the scribes and the Pharisees, makes this declaration in verse 12, I am the light of the world. And so as in the case of the temple, the brazen serpent, the living water and the manna and the rock, as in the case of all of those types and symbols, so too here, the Lord Jesus has something in the Old Testament in view. Uh, There is an Old Testament context. It has to be interpreted through the light of the Old Testament. And so you think of what's transpiring as the Lord Jesus utters these words. Again, it is the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths during the, the calendar, during the course of the year of the nation of Israel, was that time when they gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate to commemorate, to remember how God had cared for them, provided for them, and led them out of Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. And as part of their ritual, part of their ceremony, each evening they would light these enormous candelabras in the temple and these would illuminate the temple and the surrounding area. Why? Why would they do that? Well, it pointed back to one incident in particular, one historical fact in particular, noteworthy of particular note in the psyche and in the mindset of the Jewish nation is described for us in a couple of passages of Scripture. Let me read them for you. The first is found in Exodus 13. The Lord went before them by day. In a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. And so they would light these candelabras to illuminate the temple and the surrounding area in celebration of that pillar of cloud and fire. That visible manifestation of the glory of God and God's presence among the Israelites as He led them out of captivity to the promised land. But it doesn't end there. In Numbers chapter 9 verse 15 we read the following. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle. And at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. And so there is, there is in the history of the nation of Israel this, this event of, of unspeakable significance when God Himself, God Almighty, dwelt among His people, led His people, Descended upon the tabernacle, later upon the temple, and he did so in this pillar of cloud, this pillar of fire. It has a term, it is referred to as the Shekinah glory. Shekinah meaning what? Dwelling. God's dwelling glory and here God, through this visible manifestation of his glory, dwelt in the midst of his people, cared for his people, guided his people, watched over his people. And here is this during this. Yearly, annual celebration of the Feast of Booths. They would light these candelabras celebrating, pointing back to that pillar of cloud and fire. And in that context, in the midst of that celebration, the Lord Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. What's he saying? It's obvious, isn't it? Just as the temple points to me. Just as that brazen serpent lifted up in the wilderness points to me. Just like the manna that God gave you in the wilderness points to me. And just like that rock which was struck at Meribah from which flowed that water points to me. So to this light points to me. You, you, you celebrate God's dwelling presence, the Shekinah glory. Well, listen, listen carefully and listen good. I am the light of the world. That's quite the claim. Now, what do the Jews think of it? Uh, they are less than enthusiastic. I think that's a good way to put it. Verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. A talk is cheap, I suppose, is what they're getting at. Anybody could stand up and make an outlandish claim like that. You're a lone voice, a lone Cry in the wilderness, if you like. You're making these audacious claims. You're bearing witness about yourself. Well, there's nothing to validate your witness. There's nothing to validate your testimony. Why would we believe you? And to that, the Lord Jesus makes a threefold response, beginning in verse 14. And basically what he does is he makes three appeals. Three appeals. He appeals to three to things as a counter argument against their accusation. And so first of all, he appeals in verse 14 to his divine, his own divine authority. Look at it. Verse 14. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Why? For I know where I came from. And where I am going. That takes us right back to chapter seven. When the Lord Jesus first appeared in Jerusalem, when he first appeared in the midst of the feast of booths, in the middle of the celebrations, in the midst of the week. And he began to teach in the temple. The Jews came to him and immediately the point of debate, the point of issue between the Jews and the Lord Jesus was the question as to his authority. And so the Lord Jesus demonstrates his authority. He gives a a very detailed defense of his authority by explaining where he has come from and where he is going. I have come from my father. I am going to my Father. In other words, it is God who has sent me. And if it is God who has sent me, then my teaching is not mine. It is God's. Therefore, I have full authority. Therefore, my testimony is true. That's his first appeal to his own divine authority. And then he makes a second appeal, still in verse 14, and it carries on into verse 15. He appeals to their carnal understanding. Look at that right there in verse 15. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. In other words, you do not acknowledge my divine origin. You do not recognize that I have been sent from my father, from God himself. Here's your problem. Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh, fallen human nature. Human nature riddled with sin. And because you are dead in your sin, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You judge carnally. You judge in the flesh. He already went down this road in chapter 7, verse 24, telling them that they judge by outward appearances. They lack the necessary spiritual judgment to understand who He is. And because they don't understand Because they judge and they discern according to their own sinful flesh, their own sinful nature, they don't know where he has come from. They don't know where he is going. In other words, they don't understand that he is sent from God. And because they don't acknowledge that he is sent from God, they do not recognize his divine authority. And because they do not recognize his divine authority, therefore they reject his testimony. They'd follow that. And so the Lord Jesus is making the point, and I've made the point here before. I'll make it again. Look it, the issue is not proof. There is a huge difference. These are miles apart, a huge difference between proof and persuasion. The issue is not proof. The issue is persuasion. You're dead in your sin and you will not see that which you do not want to see. Because your minds are overrun by sin and you do not judge correctly. You do not discern spiritually, but you judge according to the flesh. Then he makes a third appeal in his response. And this is to his father's witness. Beginning right there at the end of verse 15, I judge no one. Into verse 16. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. Why? For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15, in your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true. Well, verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself. That's one witness. Verse 18, carrying on. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So there you have it. Two witnesses. The law itself confirms that what is testified to, that when two witnesses gather and they agree and they bear witness that their testimony is true. Well, here are two witnesses. I am one God, the Son. Here is another God, the Father. And the Father bears witness. The Father testifies of me. Well, how does the Father do that? How does the Father bear witness? And again, the Lord Jesus has already been down this road with them. Just turn back a few pages in your Bibles to John chapter 5. And there he articulates so clearly that the Father has borne witness concerning the Son, concerning the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, concerning the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has done so in the first instance through the sign. Look at John chapter 5 verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works or the signs that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. He raises the dead. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. All of these signs confirming that He is indeed the Son of God. It is the Father Himself bearing witness concerning the Son through these signs. And yet still in chapter 5, the Father bears witness, secondly, through the Scriptures. Verse 39, you search the Scriptures, the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. In other words, all that God, my father, has revealed in Scripture, going right back to the first messianic promise in Genesis 3.15, all the way through those promises given to Abraham concerning his son, his seed, all the way to David and those promises concerning his son, his seed, and then all that you read when you open up the prophets concerning the son, the servant, the branch, all of this bears witness to me. It is the Father's testimony. It all points to me and finds its meaning, its significance in me. And so you, you question my testimony, right back to verse 13. You challenge, you challenge my integrity, you challenge my witness. Well here is my response. Three appeals. First of all to my own authority. I have come from God, I am going to God, I am sent from the Father. And therefore, all that I say is simply what I have heard from the Father. My teaching is not mine. It is the Father's. But he appeals secondly to their carnal understanding. The reason you don't get that, the reason you don't perceive it, the reason you don't understand it, the reason you don't see it is because you judge according to the flesh. You're dead in your sin. And then he makes this third appeal to this twofold witness. Yes, his own witness, but supported by the witness of the father through the very signs he performed and through the very scriptures that have been given. Well, what do the Jews make of that? Verse 19. You will notice as we make our way through chapters 5 through 12, that whenever the Lord Jesus presents his argument. Or presents his his position. Uh, whenever the Lord Jesus comes at the scribes and Pharisees with, with scripture and with evidence and with proof. They rarely engage him. Uh, they rarely respond directly to his arguments. Uh, very rarely do they have any response to that which he throws at them. Uh, nor what, what they normally do is what? They change the subject. Or they resort to that to the to the to slander or to accusations and, and I think potentially that's what we have here in verse nineteen. They're certainly looking to change the subject. This might even be slander. They said to him therefore, verse nineteen, Where is your father? That could be a slanderous question. What could they be implying? Uh, we know the story, we know the history surrounding your apparent illegitimacy. Uh, where is your father? That's an old trick, isn't it? That when we can't respond to someone's arguments, when we can't respond to someone's proof, what do we resort to? A personal attack. We see it in politics all the time. Rather than engaging people's platforms, rather than than responding to people's ideas, rather than having anything to do with people's positions, what do we do? We'd rather sling mud. And that appears that's what the scribes and the Pharisees resort to here in verse 19. The Lord Jesus shrugs it off. And he gets again right to the heart of the matter. He won't let go of it. He won't deviate from it. You know neither me nor my father. There's the problem. If you knew me, you would know my father also. I think at R.C. Sproul, I've heard him say it once or twice. I don't know if he coined the phrase, but it's a good one. I've heard him say, those convinced against their will hold their first opinion still. That's the scribes and the Pharisees. They will not see what they do not want to see because of their sin. And because sin has such a grip and hold upon them. That's the content of verses 12 through 20. Of John chapter eight. What I want to do this morning is go all the way back to verse twelve. I think this is the, the gem that we need to focus in on this morning. And you'll have noticed that as as Chris led us this morning and and, and, in the songs and hymns and, and the emphasis that was there in the scripture reading as well on this great truth that God is light, the Lord Jesus is light. Right here in verse 12, we have this gem of a statement, this great claim, this great declaration. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me. Will not walk in darkness, but will have. The light of life. Now, before we get to the 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 nitty gritty, the content of that verse, we need to acknowledge or or the verse will just fly right over our heads. We need to acknowledge that this verse, Christ's claim has a very clear, obvious implication, does it not? When the Lord Jesus says, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It implies what? That we are in darkness. If we don't grasp that, if we don't have our minds around that, then the words of the Lord Jesus become become meaningless we must, we must understand the, what Christ's words imply, namely this, that man sits in darkness. Now that, that is extremely difficult for us to accept. It is extremely difficult for us in the West to accept. Why? Because we in the West live with what David Wells has rightly called, and listen listen closely to this, what David Wells has rightly called the illusions of progress or progress. I'm going to stick with progress. The illusions of progress. And what does he mean by these illusions of progress? What is he talking about? We can communicate with one another using cell phones and Blackberries. We can access an incalculable amount of information via the Internet at a mere touch of a key. We can travel halfway around the world in a matter of hours. We can transplant hearts and kidneys. We can build bridges that traverse the water below and towers that reach the clouds above. We can send spacecraft into the far reaches of the galaxy to take pictures. We can harness the power of water and wind. We can harness the energy of an atom. And it goes on and on. And what we have in these things is the illusion of progress. Because as we look at these things, we conclude what? We're advancing. We're evolving. We're moving forward. We're making progress. But the point is this. These things in and of themselves are illusions. These technological advancements with which we live and from which we derive this false sense of advancing and progressing are actually illusionary. I enjoy canoeing. I don't know if you've ever done any canoeing or kayaking. And you're out there in the middle of the lake in your canoe and you dip that paddle into the lake and you look down. And what does it look like? It looks like the paddle is jutting out at a right angle from the canoe. It is an illusion. Or come July, you're driving down some Texas highway and you're just in this straightaway. and It's one o'clock in the afternoon and you look off in the horizon. And what does it look like? Water. It is an Illusion. These things do not reflect reality. And we in the West live with the illusions of progress. I think in large part it is based upon evolutionary theory. It's based on evolutionary theory as a philosophy that we are advancing from lower life forms to more complex and greater life forms. Therefore, as individuals and as societies, we too must be progressing and advancing and evolving. And we have fallen into this idea that we live in an age of enlightenment. We are actually enlightened individuals. We're actually part of an enlightened society, actually part of an enlightened country. But it is an illusion. Man sits in darkness. Let me suggest to you this morning that there is a threefold darkness in which man finds himself. Firstly, man finds himself in intellectual darkness. That's the scribes and Pharisees. We see it in the text. Why don't they understand Christ's claims? Why don't they get it? Why don't they perceive the significance of those miracles which he performs in their very presence? Why do not they why don't they read the Old Testament scriptures that bear witness of Christ that so clearly and obviously point to Christ and see him on every page? Why don't they understand it is because their minds are darkened and still man today sits in intellectual darkness? We see that at the, the we see the evidence of that darkness all around us. I suppose if, if if you want an example we need to look no further than simply the great questions with which man wrestles, the great philosophical questions which in actual fact are religious pursuits. Uh, what, what is truth? What is true? Man asks that question What is real? What is what is good? And as we look at philosophy and as we look at man's intellectual state, particularly in the West, we find that as he has wrestled with these questions, he has hit up against a brick wall. Why? Because he has relegated God to the periphery. He has he has reasoned to himself that the God hypothesis is no longer necessary to answer the great ultimate questions of life. And the moment man relegated God to the periphery and sought the answers to these questions, questions of ultimate reality, what is true, what is knowledge, what is real, what is good. He has found what? A vacuum, a vacuum that he has been unable to fill and a vacuum that has invariably led to what plagues Western society today. And it is a spirit of despair. James Montgomery Boyce, better than anyone, put his finger on this when he wrote This generation has become the now generation in which any firm anchor to the past has been lost. We have been told that the past is meaningless. Everything is focused on the present. We are told by the advertisers that we only go around once. We should forget about the past and not worry about the future. It sounds like good philosophy. But the loneliness and anxiety of a philosophy like that is almost intolerable. And yet there man man sit, sits in his philosophical, in his intellectual darkness, unable to see the forest for the trees. Just like the scribes and Pharisees. I, I've thought about this a lot. What it would have been like... To have sat there in the presence of the Lord Jesus. To have known the Old Testament scriptures like the scribes knew the Old Testament scriptures. To have seen the signs and wonders and miracles performed by the Lord Jesus. And yet I've realized what? It wouldn't have made an iota of difference in my life. I would have been just as dead if I had been there myself as I was born into the 20th century. Why? Because man is plagued with darkness, an intellectual darkness. And secondly, man suffers from moral darkness. That's true of the scribes and Pharisees. I don't want to throw stones, but uh, we see their moral failure quite clearly in John chapter 8. It starts right at the beginning of the chapter when they bring that woman caught in adultery. And they appear to be all zealous. They appear to be in this fervor and frenzy concerning God's law, God's justice, God's holiness. But what they have done is simply devised this this most devious plan whereby they are using this poor woman simply to get at the Lord Jesus. Looking for some reason, some motive, some excuse to arrest Him so that they might do what? They might put Him to death. They might kill Him. And in this we see their blindness, their blindness to their own moral depravity, their blindness to the the darkness of their own hearts. And as we look around at society today, and as we look around at man today, and as we look at our own lives and into our own hearts today, we see, do we not, the prevalence of this moral darkness, ethical darkness. We see it... We see it on a, on a on a big scale, for lack of a better word, a, a scale that uh, hangs over society, even at a at a political level. I, I am in no way. I'll proceed cautiously here. I am in no way criticizing the office of the president, but I was I was I was alarmed by not only not only what has happened in, in, in recent weeks, some of the decisions that have been made but alarmed by some of the statements accompanying those decisions. And so you know as well as I do that the president has repealed the ban on funds for embryonic stem cell research. And that decision was accompanied with this two-second soundbite. Science, not ideology, will chart the course. Think about it for a moment. Science, not ideology, will chart the course. Someone please tell me what is charting the course of science. There is this idea that scientists are these bastions of impartiality. They most certainly are not. They approach their discipline like anyone else with a multitude of presuppositions, assumptions and biases. What ideology is guiding science? What standard of morality? What ethic? Is guiding the scientist. It's Francis Schaeffer. Who had his finger on the pulse of western man. Better than anyone who wrote. Without the absolute line. Without the absolute line. Which Christianity gives. Of the total uniqueness of man. People have no boundary line. Between what they can do. And what they should do. And that is where we find ourselves today. Ethical. Moral darkness. We see it on that scale. Even closer to home, we see it in our own hearts. We see it in our fellow man. And Charles Colson, to that end has written, In the name of the right of a woman to control her own body, 1.5 million unborn children are murdered in the United States each year. More humans have been disposed of in the U.S. since the legalization of abortion in the 70s than in the Holocaust in World War II. In this, the most educated and technically advanced society the world has ever known, we have a divorce rate that has had increased steadily for decades, soaring crime rates, widespread child abuse, countless shattered families. As a nation, we have been blessed with unprecedented material abundance. But what it has produced is a boredom so pervasive that drug use is epidemic. And this this next statement I found just startling. Drug and alcohol rehabilitation is the fastest growth industry in America. That speaks of moral darkness, ethical darkness whereby we find not only our minds and our ability to reason when it comes to ultimate reality and things of of, of a spiritual, eternal nature, skewed and distorted, but we find, too, our hearts in the grip of sin, whereby it manifests itself in all sorts of sins. And we don't need to throw stones. We don't need to look at that individual. We don't need to look at that group. We need to look no further than ourselves. And we find within us, what, such propensity for evil and such selfishness and self-centeredness. And in this, we see the darkness and blackness of our own hearts, the darkness, the very darkness in which we sit. And thirdly, let me suggest to you this morning that man finds himself in the grips of a spiritual darkness. And this is the root cause of that intellectual darkness. It is the root cause of that moral darkness. It is a spiritual darkness. We see it in the scribes and Pharisees. Look at verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know, neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. In coming weeks, we're going to see that the Lord Jesus gets gets e- even more descriptive in, in in the state in which the scribes and Pharisees and all humanity find themselves later on in the chapter. Look at verse 44 and what he says there to the scribes and Pharisees: "You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire." He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Oh, that is a harsh statement, is it not? Right there at the start of verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. We hear an awful lot about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. You ever heard those expressions? If, on the one hand, we mean by the fatherhood of God, simply that God has created everyone. Okay, I'm comfortable with that. You can defend that from scripture. If, on the other hand, we mean that God is everyone's spiritual father, nothing could be further from the truth. Scripture makes it clear that man's spiritual father is Satan. It is the devil. Man finds himself in part of this, this kingdom of darkness under the devil's control. As Paul describes it there in Ephesians chapter 2, he tells us that those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, they walk. How? Following the course of this world, not only that, but following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There is this alienation, this great divide between man and God. And man now finds himself in the clutches of Satan himself in this spiritual darkness. And it is from this spiritual darkness that arises this intellectual darkness, this darkness of the mind and this moral darkness, this darkness of the heart. And if we do not grasp that, if we do not understand that, then Christ's words make no sense at all. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, notice three truths in that verse, in that statement uttered by the Lord Jesus. Three precious truths. The first is this. Christ is the light. He states it. In no uncertain terms, I am the light. I've already explained the context to you. The Feast of Booths, the candelabra shining, illuminating the temple and the surrounding area. What's the Old Testament context? It's the pillar of cloud and fire. The Shekinah glory. When God himself dwelled Visibly leading the nation of Israel and then dwelt in the midst of the nation visibly when he descended upon the tabernacle, later upon the temple, when the Lord Jesus stands before the scribes and Pharisees, before the Jews. And when we hear his cry echoing through the centuries to the present day, I am the light. It is a claim to deity. He is claiming to be whom he is claiming to be the God of Israel. He is claiming to be God almighty. He is claiming to be the great I am. I am the light. And This becomes so clear, does it not? John doesn't record it, but it becomes so clear at the the hour of his transfiguration as it's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 17. Do you remember that incident? Those of you who are familiar with it. There the Lord Jesus finds himself on that mount alone with a couple of the disciples. And we read that he was transfigured before them. And the Greek term for transfigured is the word from which we get our English word metamorphosis. To change form. And so we use it in reference to those insects and amphibians that begin life as a larva and then transform into something beautiful. The most obvious example, I suppose, that of the caterpillar goes through metamorphosis, a change in form. And it emerges from that cocoon as a beautiful butterfly. Well, there you have it on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Lord Jesus is transformed. It is but a temporary transformation, but it is a very real transformation. Matthew tells us that his face shone like the sun. Speaking of his radiance and brilliance, that his clothes became as light. Or as Mark says, intensely white. Or as Luke says, dazzling white. And there we see the light shining through the veil of Christ's humanity, the Shekinah glory, the one who is the light. But as if that weren't enough, this cloud descends upon the mountain. Now in your mind, you should already be going back to What? the Old Testament context, the Shekinah glory, when that pillar of cloud and fire guided the nation of Israel, descended upon the tabernacle or the temple later when it was constructed, filled the holiest of holies as God dwelt in the midst of His people. And then years went by and Ezekiel saw that awful vision, did he not? What did Ezekiel see? He saw the Shekinah glory departing from the temple. God departing from the midst of the nation of Israel. and For close to 500 years there is nothing. And then all of a sudden the Lord Jesus enters the scene. And he stands upon this mount. And is transfigured in the presence of Peter, James and John. Joined by Moses and Elijah. And the cloud descends. Reminding us of the Shekinah glory. And there is a temporary. Temporary setting aside of the veil of Christ's flesh and a temporary disclosure of the indwelling Shekinah, the glory of His Godhead. I am the light. Now let me say something here that I think is extremely important. It may not, it may not be important for all of us, but certainly for some of us and it may be important to you at some point. I'm alarmed, alarmed today by by, by the conversations that are taking place among Christians, Jews, and Muslims concerning the fatherhood of God. Even some so-called evangelicals saying that, yes, we have different opinions about God, but basically in the final analysis, we all worship the same God. When the Lord Jesus says, I am the light and when the Lord Jesus says later in verse 19, you know, neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. What is the inescapable col- conclusion that we must take from that? There is no knowledge of God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. He he is the light. He is the true light. And let me, I will, I will say this in the strongest terms and I hope, I hope loving, compassionate terms this morning. If you and I are not worshiping God revealed in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are worshiping an idol. An idol. And so even when we get these little ecumenical get-togethers, and an evangelical prays, and a Muslim prays, and a Jew prays. Please, friends, understand that when the evangelical, assuming for a moment that he really is born again, when he prays, he is praying to God. When the others pray, they are praying to their father. Who is their father? It is the devil. I know that is harsh. I know that is narrow-minded. So be it. So be it. Because Christ makes it so clear. He's un- He's unequivocal. And and, and there is there is there's there's no room for jostling or maneuvering here. This is an absolute claim. I am the light. If you knew me, you would know my father also. The second truth I want you to notice is this. He says, I am the light of the world. I take great comfort in that this morning. Christ is the light of the world. When you think back to the Shekinah glory, the pillar of cloud and fire, God dwelt in the midst of whom? The nation of Israel. And the Shekinah glory was restricted to whom? The nation of Israel. And God led the nation of Israel. God filled the, the tabernacle, and the temple, the holiest of holies, which was there in the midst of the nation of Israel. And now the Lord Jesus enters the scene and he declares and he makes it so clear I am the light of the world, not restricted to the Jews, but a light to the world. You could go right back to John chapter one, verse twenty nine, the cry of John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not just for Jews. You can fast forward to John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You can fast forward into chapter four, when the Lord Jesus meets that woman of Samaria by the well. And she goes and she shares this great news with the other Samaritans. And they come back and they declare, we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. It's not restricted to ethnicity. But you think of what we once were. Paul makes it clear in Ephesians chapter two. He tells us that we were separated from Christ. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were cut off or separated from the covenant of promise without hope, without God. Now the Lord Jesus makes this great and wondrous declaration. I am the light of the world. You think of old Simeon and his cry in Luke chapter 2. My eyes have seen your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Or you think of what Matthew records as the Lord Jesus enters the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles. Matthew writes, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Another third truth I want you to notice this morning. Still in verse 12. Christ is the light of life. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Simply put. A light serves two functions, doesn't it? You enter your house late at night, it's dark, what's the first thing you do? Turn on the lights. To illuminate the room. You go out in your car late at night, what's the first thing you do after starting up the engine? You turn on your headlights. To illuminate, so you can see where you're going. Well, so too, Christ is the light. He illuminates. He is the true light that imparts truth, shows us the way, leads us into salvation. And yet, secondly, light serves another function, doesn't it? It enlivens. It gives life. Without light, what would happen to the flowers that you've planted in your garden? What would happen to all vegetation? It would die. Without light, we would die. Without light, this world, this earth would fall into chaos. And so, too, Christ is the light of life. He is the life-giving light. He is the source of spiritual life. That by leading us into the truth and revealing God to us and showing our sin to us and helping us to understand what He accomplished at Calvary's cross when He died for sinners and by bringing us to saving faith, trusting in Him alone for salvation, He imparts life, whereby we're brought into fellowship with God. And that spiritual life leads to eternal J.C. Ryle writes, he will not be left in ignorance like so many around him. He will not grope in doubt and uncertainty, but will see the way to heaven, knowing where he is going. He will feel within him the light of God's countenance shining on him. He will find in his conscience and understanding a living light. Nothing can quench. The lights with which many please themselves will go out in the valley of the shadow of death. But the light that Christ gives will never fail. Now there is one final detail. And perhaps you noticed it. I'm sure you did. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, there is a qualification, isn't there? There is a requirement. A couple of weeks ago, I was speaking with an individual here in Glen Rose, and this individual shared with me that she is a universalist. Do You know what I mean by that? Everyone will be saved in the end. What does the Lord Jesus say? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so you think back, think back to the Shekinah glory, the dwelling glory of God. and Think back to that pillar of cloud during the day, the pillar of fire during the night, and how the Israelites had to follow That Shekinah glory. And if they failed to follow the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, they perished. And the same is true today. Yes, the promise is there. We will not walk in darkness. Yes, amen, we will have the light of life. Yes, that's fantastic. Christ is the light of the world. But he is only light. He is exclusively light to those who follow Him. Let me ask you this morning, do you follow the Lord Jesus? Are you a follower of Christ? Do you see Him in all His glory? As we've made our way through John's Gospel account here. And seen the glory of His authority and of His wisdom, of His compassion, of His mercy and of His grace. Do you see Him forsaken at the cross? The innocent dying for the guilty. That three hours of darkness falling, drawn upon the cross of Christ, from which shines forth the light of Christ, the way of salvation. Do you see it? Do you see him as the Savior of sinners? Do you see him as Lord and Master? Do you follow the Lord Jesus Christ?